0: Developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake. I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach. and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Eric Chasen is the special guest on today's show. He's a resiliency coach and turnaround expert. And he's the author from Despair to Millionaire. Before we get a chance to speak with Eric... It's a Leadership Hacker News. In today's news, we explore how Google has created its high-performance culture. Take one look inside the incredible Googleplex, and it's pretty obvious why they receive an average of 2.5 million CVs and resumes every year. From having nab pods offering on-site massage, to providing every employee with three square meals a day, Google's really got this absolutely boxed off. Yeah, it's not only the indoor swimming pools, the beach volleyball courts, and the free on-site laundry that has led to the £300 billion giant tech getting a 93% CEO approval rating for its CEO on Glassdoor. This company doesn't need to be generating millions in revenue to hack the fundamental principles that Google set the team apart. Here are the top three lessons that every business can learn from. Number one, psychological safety is a necessity. In 2012, Google launched an in-depth study to determine what sets the teams apart that struggle to work together and those that effectively meet their outcomes. Google put together a team of statisticians, organizational psychologists, and engineers to solve the dilemma. The project was called Project Aristotle, and it reviewed studies spanning over 50 years as well as every possible characteristic of the teams within the organization. They looked for patterns of how the teams socialized outside of work as well as inside of work, personality traits, Jungian in its style of introverts and extroverts and it soon became clear that these traits the ones that most of us would think most logically that would impact our ability to form weren't the key ones. And As they dug deeper they found the understanding of the group's norms, the underwritten rules by which the team governs itself almost, and the characteristics that most wars were number one psychological safety. Psychological safety is defined as the individual's perception of the consequences of taking an interpersonal risk. In other words it's how any team member of the team perceives their ability to be innovative and admit to mistakes when it goes wrong. Number two, it starts with the leader. The impact of having a strong manager wasn't new to Google, but a project that they launched called Project Oxygen back in 2008 was an undertaking to determine the best qualities of the best managers. And in the Google team, they gathered over 10,000 observations of their managers to determine what traits that their employers found most helpful and which were most unattractive and unhelpful. And on the back of Stephen Coffey's famous Highly Effective Habits theme, created the 8 Habits of Highly Effective Google Managers. And of those 8 habits, number one was to be a good coach, two was to empower your team and to not micromanage, three was to express an interest in your team members' success and personal well-being, four they titled it, don't be a sissy, be productive and results focused, five be a communicator and listen to your team, six help employers with career development. Seven, have a clear vision for your team within the organization. And eight, have the technical skills so you can help and advise your team. And the third thing that contributes to a high-performance culture was data is empowering. It should come as no surprise to a tech company that creates enormous amounts of data, complicated algorithms, and makes their decisions based on data, that Google takes this really seriously. But they take it to another level. In fact, Google's human resources department is called People Analytics department because of their commitment to making decisions that flow from data. Google's attention to detail and willingness to look at data from all angles fully to understand how their people are operating and behaving is highly sought after. And whilst Google has spent millions of dollars analysing every aspect of their employees' lives inside and outside of work, the big lesson that smaller companies can take from this is just the importance of regular performance reviews and employee surveys. That's been the Leadership hacking News. Please get in touch with us if you have insights and information that you think our listeners would love to hear. I'm joined on today's show by Eric Chasen. He's a resiliency coach, a turnaround expert, and author of From Despair to Millionaire. Eric, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you very much, Steve. Really glad to be here. Delighted to have you on the show. We've been uh, talking about this for months now, so I'm excited to get into a little bit about what you do in the backstory. So for folks that are listening today, just tell us a little bit about what does a resiliency coach and turnaround expert actually do?
1: Sounds good, Steve. Yeah, so I've spent the last year or so working on my book that we're going to talk a little bit about. And at the same time, I, um, my book and my story are kind of interchangeable, one and the same. And I went from entry-level positions in just two careers, really, that I've worked in, or two industries, uh, so, uh, related ones, but two uh, uh, distinct ones. To having a great opportunity to be part of one startup and then a subsequent startup, you know, both of them doing quite well, and so very, very fortunate for that. Uh, At the same time, I experienced quite a bit of adversity in particular during the first startup. And, you know, that was sort of the motivation and the the thought behind creating the program and the book really to help people. So what I'm doing these days is I'm working with people and with teams, helping them, you know, I like to say helping them bounce back, even bounce back higher if they're going through a tough patch of adversity, if they're needing some extra grit some extra determination some extra resilience i particularly enjoy working with uh, teams and and also um you know individuals on their uh, quest for bouncing back and and bouncing back higher
0: that sounds awesome now i guess there is a little clue in the tunnel here from despair to millionaire that There's been some adversity in that backstory of helping you get to where you get to now. Just give us a little sense of kind of what it was that created you to give you that focus, that drive that you have now.
1: Yeah, Steve, back in uh, 1999, uh, 2000, I had, previous to that, I had left a, you know, one of two careers that I worked, sort of worked my way up in, and I uh, was a phone sales agent. And at the time, the Director of sales and, and a couple of other partners started a company in the, in the same industry and invited me in to be uh, with, with a small equity position to help build because I had experience, you know, working on the phones. And I had also had previous for about 10 years before that in a, a management position. So I was invited in. I was the fourth person in, in the startup to um, build out their sales, uh, training, hiring, uh, in, in performance uh, of the call center. About two months into that new startup, I was uh, engaged and we were planning our wedding for, this was in April 99. And we planned our wedding for July of 99. And my fiance very uh, suddenly and unexpectedly died in automobile accident, April 25th of 1999. So obviously that was you know devastating, and it was just two or three months into beginning this new company. So on one hand it was it was very, very difficult. On the other hand, it was a blessing that I had the distraction of a of, of a new startup and all the demands of that. even with all the opportunity that the startup provided, including a small equity position, you know it was a startup wage. so I was struggling financially as well as struggling you know emotionally with a loss. and about six months after that, in and around the beginning of 2000, ended 99, 2000, struggling financially to get some relief. I actually filed personal bankruptcy, which was, you know, a bit of a, uh, everything that comes along with, uh, you know, financial failure in, in sort of hanging, giving that up. And shortly after that, in early uh, 2000, basically a year from when I lost my fiance, my mom, who I'm very, very close with, in fact, I've dedicated my uh, second chapter of my book is to her. And there's a saying, um, there. Uh, my mom was uh, diagnosed with inoperable lung cancer and that was uh, March or April of 2000 and she passed away in August of 2000. So within within a year, you know, 99, 2000, um, I suffered significant personal loss uh, that I've, you know, never experienced before or since as well as, uh, you know, the financial. So it was really a low point in my life and You know, having mentioned earlier that I was part of a startup and there was lots of opportunity there to throw myself into my work, um, you know, ask for help. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I certainly uh, needed it, you know, professionally, colleague-wise, anybody family at the time. And that's really where my story starts or or the book starts really is around those, there's 12 chapters in the book and really the first two chapters sort of talk about the uh, loss and the despair around the loss. The well, subsequent ten chapters are really what I feel are, you know, some of the tools and opportunities and blessings, really, that propel me forward. You know, to six or seven years later, being able to l- literally become a millionaire, and part of the next startup was pivotal in that, and and then actually retire uh, in my um, late forties.
0: It's a really fascinating story, Eric, and one that you know we've spoken about before. And every time I hear you. Tell that story. That despair is still really quite vivid for you. I can almost feel you you emotionally going through that as you kind of describe that. What is it you think that creates that resiliency at that time? Because ultimately, when you look back, you could probably connect the dots. But I think for many people, I suspect they go one of either way, right? Yes.
1: You know, I think it's around. You know, they say hindsight is twenty twenty, right? When you're living through it, sometimes you just you know. I can remember trying to read books on You know why you know uh, why bad things happen to good people, and you know how to go on living when somebody you love dies. And I was joining grief support groups, even um, silly as it sounds. And I talk about this in my book. I joined several months after I lost my fiance. I joined at the time it was before online dating. It was more, it was much more awkward than (laughs) other than that. Back twenty years ago, I wanted to. I had such you know love and admiration for my fiance, feeling like it was the love of my life. Up to that point, that I wanted to, you know, see if I could to fill that void, and I was silly thinking, you know, just a few months after her loss that, so, you know, you do a lot of different things, and fortunately, I had a supportive at the time. My mom, uh, you know, she was alive for about a year after or so, and you know, close with my brother, and we became closer, and and, and subsequent became business partners on the on the next endeavor, and so I, you know, I had supportive um, colleagues at work, and I had supportive of professionals. You know, psychologist, that type of thing, as well as you know, family and some close friends, and that's really you know that's what gets you through the initial stage. And I, I think there's no substitute for time, though, Steve. Time is an amazing. I got that from my mother. I, when I said to my mom shortly after losing Jen, I said to my mother, "Mom, you know, the oldest in my family at 13 years old, my oldest brother was killed riding his bicycle." And I said to my mother, "You know, as a, I'm a parent now of a 17-year-old." I said to my mom back then. 20 years ago, I said, Mom, how do you go on? I mean, how do you get over, rather, losing somebody so close and so suddenly? And and she said to me, Eric, you never get over it. You just learn to live with it. And that's, you know, that really sums it up, Steve. I, I, the resilience, the long answer to your very good question, though. No, it's, an, <laughs> it's a
0: really poignant answer, Eric, too, because I think the whole philosophy of, of learning through time is part of that healing process if if that's what you call it or the realization that you you still have jobs of work to do for your family and people around you right
1: yeah for sure yep it's a classic one day one one step at a time one day at a time and and time is an amazing you can't rush it but time really and it's 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 by no means um overstated Uh, time is really an amazing healer
0: sure and when did you notice the pivotal time then for you, Eric, when things were moving in the right direction? You're getting that momentum behind you and you're on the upward trajectory.
1: It wasn't a straight line or, you know, uh, or, or continue. It was more of a take a few steps forward, back, up, down, a little bit more like a crazy um, EKG than, a, uh, than an even blips. So after a few years with that the initial startup that I was with when I lost both my fiance and my mom, and had, had the personal bankruptcy. My brother had this idea after being in high tech, doing very, very well with a high tech company. He sort of wanted to leave the corporate grind and saw what I was doing. I was living in Maine at the time, originally from Massachusetts, and he was still in mass, but commuting about an hour and a half each way. Having done that for about 10 years, had enough. So he, he was going to start a similar type company that I was working for, which was a service-based call center, sales center. He um, looked at the technology. So to answer what was really pivotal, what was a pivotal move, Steve, was actually relocating back from the state of Maine to to Massachusetts and, you know, becoming partners with my brother. You know, little did we know, I mean, I left a perfectly, you know, good job and that startup was doing well in Maine and they went on to do very, very well. They, They did well in the two and a half, three years that I was there and they went on to do, you know, very well after I left. And we used to kid my brother and I and a third partner. We, we all left perfectly good jobs to do this startup here in Massachusetts that we, you know, we went through like, a, you know, uh, not unusual with startups. We went through a few years of sort of hopping from lily pad to lily pad to, to stay afloat. And then subsequent to the three really challenging initial years we had three very good years and you know made the decision to actually sell the company after three to four really good years
0: that's great news and it gives you the evidence i guess that perhaps what you didn't realize at the time you were going through was building up those tactile foundations of resilience right yes
1: you know and it's um like i said it's like most things it's not a straight line there's you know uh, you got to be fortunate for the peaks that you have and you got to be not too too disappointed in the valleys because that's really what it's about, the peaks and the valleys. And to the extent that you can stay, I have a chapter in my book called Guts, Guts, Grit and Resilience. And that's really what it takes. Sometimes it just takes hard work. I think entrepreneurial endeavors always take hard work. And then sometimes that's just enough, the hard work. And other times it really takes guts, grit and resilience, which is a uh, extra commitment over and above hard work. There's other factors too, which is um, surrounding yourself with good people. That we were very, very fortunate to be able to do and acquire. Which was, besides the three of us, uh, co-founders of the company, we had some other partners that were very helpful. Some came and went, and we had some certainly had some incredible people that we that came to work with us that were just superb.
0: That's great to hear too. So in the book from Despair to Millionaire, you talk. Uh, a couple of things within that. I just wanted us to pick apart, so I think it'd be really helpful for our listeners to get your lens on those, Eric, one of which is mentor and mentoring. And you mentioned you had some really good people around you. What role do you think mentors played in your journey to becoming a millionaire?
1: You know, I uh, one of the real joys of deciding to write my business memoir was the ch- chapter three of it, which is dedicated to the mentors. It's, de- it's dedicated to mentorship in general, but in particular to... A handful. I, I, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get all the mentors in there because there's, there's more that I had along the way. But I was able to talk about four or five significant ones. And to me, you know, that's the difference of sitting here talking right now and and, and having a story to write, of uh, you know, a success story to write, and not not having one potentially is two things. One is having people. My uh, first mentor, which was before the business world was um, when I was interested in weightlifting and bodybuilding as a teenager. I I, I talk about this uh, David Berman in my book, uh, who has since passed, but point is, is that he taught me some attributes that were very, very helpful along the way onward and upward in the business world. To my first business mentor, Paul Leary, who um, I may talk about the most in there other than my brother, he was somebody that when I went to work for him at 21 years old as a college dropout, he was a guy that I looked at and said, I want to be like him. You know, he was a consummate entrepreneur, rags to riches story himself, uh, and a super successful guy that that went on to build a number of companies from nothing. So, And, and he wasn't the easiest guy in the world to work for. Again, a consummate sort of hard driving entrepreneur, but just an incredible motivator, leader. I learned a lot from him uh, in my early, uh, early and mid-20s that I, I think about it, it as one of those things. I lost touch with him for 25 years. And after writing the book, Uh, I was such a um, honor and such a joy to be able to, I found his email address, sent him a note, and we were able to reconnect through email after about 25 years. So, you know, he was very happy to hear from me and and sort of obviously thrilled to be honored. And um, it was uh, meant a, a lot to me to be able to do that because, you know, if it wasn't for him, my trajectory may have been different, and I talk about some other mentors along the way, right up into my perhaps maybe the uh, sort of my last mentor in business, which was my uh, older brother, who's ten years older, and um, he was very pivotal in the in, in sort of the home stretch of of my story.
0: Basically, that's a really uh, thoughtful reflection because as you were talking about your brother being a mentor as well, I guess people often have that misconception that brothers and business partners can't actually mentor each other. But actually, you can, can't you? <laughs> it's a great point,
1: Steve. My brother and I, early on. So again, he was—I was always a little brother until you know you get to a certain age, and then we had some similar interests, and, and then ultimately we—he invited me into his company for a good ownership stake, and that was in uh, 2001. And we went on to again uh, struggle together for a few years, and, and then do very, very well for the next several. But the point is, is that early on we said that. We were never going to let anything come between our brotherhood and uh, friendship, and and it never did. And we rarely, we rarely even had any arguments. You know, he was the CEO of the company, and he had the experience. He was the um, chief operating officer of a publicly held company, that high-tech company I talked about a little bit earlier. And he had the business acumen. You know, he was excellent at building culture and excellent problem-solving skills. And uh, he was just a real outstanding person to be the CEO of the company. I don't know if you ever loved the job <laughs> because of all the other added stuff that came along. He was the best salesperson in terms of acquiring new business that that we ever had. So he was excellent, very, very passionate about our business and our ability to deliver for our clients. And I was fortunate enough, Steve, he actually, I asked him and he wrote, some of this is summarized in the, in the forward of from Despair to Millionaire, my brother wrote the foreword. Steve Jason again, uh, uh, a real. Um, I'm grateful that we have the
0: kind of relationship that he was able and willing to write that. That's great. And gratitude also plays a key part of your book, and you call it the key to fulfillment. Tell us a little bit about why that's so important to you.
1: Yeah, I think um, I think it's critical that we recognize it's all about the old saying there of treating the person that serves you coffee the same as CEO or, you know, that that uh, treating everybody basically the same. That's my default mode really is treating everybody with, with kindness and respect. That, that's my default mode, whether, again, whether I'm getting my coffee or talking to um, the CEO of a company that's interested in training or coaching, what have you. And again, the gratitude really comes from recognizing that, you know, we're not able to do it alone, you know, mentorship comes in to play there as well. So I think gratitude really is just in humility, really go hand in hand, you know, being humble enough, being humble enough to be grateful and realizing that, you know, you can't do it alone. And there's a lot to be said for expressing gratitude, whether it's somebody that helped you go up the ladder to success, or somebody that cares enough to make your coffee well enough each day and and delivers that kind of service. So I just, it's uh, the old saying of the attitude of gratitude. It just, I try to express that throughout my life. And I I think it comes back to me in the form of fulfillment.
0: You know what I mean? In form of people tend to uh, act in kind in return. I love the attitude of gratitude. I love the notion of attitude as gratitude because it just makes you realize that it's a choice that we make. And people are putting themselves out there to do jobs that can sometimes be less than thankful, but the smallest bit of gratitude and recognition can go a long way, can't it?
1: Yes, you bet. It's paid me dividends throughout my life because, you know, a lot of times, Steve, I didn't have a lot of things, a long list of things to bring to the party. You know, I dropped out of college. I started entry level in in one industry and worked my way up into supervisory and management probably before I should have. I, again, that, that mentor that I mentioned earlier was very, very pivotal and helpful there. And then after about 10 years in that industry, I went, again, I started entry level in, in the subsequent industry that I went on to be in management and, and uh, equity and ownership and ultimately retire early retirement and, and then on to coaching, mentoring and authoring. But the point is, is that you know there's a lot of people that helped along the way and there's a lot of people that I couldn't have done it without them and i think it's having that attitude of gratitude and treating others well i uh, wasn't always the easiest leader or manager to work for because of course you know results are important and in, in, in that however i thought you know being fair was critical and treating others well and which includes treating others fairly and treating others well is really uh, the best investment you can make in yourself treating
0: others well And you call it an investment, and I think it's the right word too, Eric, because many people don't see that gratitude as an investment. Being fair, being appreciative of people can actually directly transfer to bottom line results and revenue as much as just make people feel good, right?
1: Yes, and and don't wait for the other person. You know, a lot of times people, they're waiting for the other uh, party or the other person or the other employee or the other colleague or the other neighbor to treat them kindly and treat them well. I find that it works really well if uh, you make the first move. you know nine out of ten times, like I said people respond in kind and they can't do enough for you because they you know that's the way kind of like the way of the world right You get what you want in life by helping others get what they need. yeah the gift
0: of reciprocity, gift to receive isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's reciprocity is you know res- respect and reciprocation are some of my core values actually Steve. I'm glad you mentioned that word reciprocity. I, you know, I believe in that um, reciprocation. I sort of very important for me to return the, and that and that's in the and that comes back to your original question of gratitude, Steve. You know, reciprocity is is a demonstration of gratitude.
0: It is. It is. And uh, I hold those values true myself too. We'll give the folks at the end of the show an opportunity to find out where they can get a copy of From Despair to Billionaire. But before we do that, we're going to turn the leadership lens on you. And this is part of the show where we hack into your leadership mind. So, as a resiliency coach and turnaround expert now, you've also been a leader of large scale businesses as well. So, we want to hack into some of those leadership experiences. So, from your perspective, Eric, in leading others, what would be your top three leadership hacks?
1: Great, great question, Steve. And, you know, since I only have three, I, I like to keep things really, really simple. You know, I, I, I learn in simple terms, I try to teach in simple terms. And I find that's very duplicatable and replicatable. I like to think of things like in threes, in this case, A, B, C. So, you know, A being attitude as a leader and as a leadership hack here that we're talking about, lead with the right attitude. Attitude is one of those intangible qualities. We can't measure it, but we, we certainly know when it's there and we can tell for sure when it's not there. So if you want a team of people operating with a can-do attitude, And then lead with that attitude as well. So they're going to just not too much different than being a parent, actually. You know, if you want your child or or family to have a good attitude, if you want your team or employees to have a good attitude, it all starts with you, the leader, having the right attitude. So that's one. Also belief. Believe in your team. Believe in your colleagues. You know, believe. Belief is in faith. Um, If you've hired the right people, You know, believe in them. My brother used to say, "You know, I like people that I can give them a rope and they bring me back a horse. I don't have to tell them, you know, how to do that." So believe in your belief. That's 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 my next hack. So hire the right people. You know, uh, work along the right colleagues if you can, and hire the right people and and have faith and have belief in them. So that's the second one, and and the third one really is communication is uh as you notice to keep it simple, it went ABC uh, communication is uh, paramount it's in that you know it all starts with listening. listen first, listen often, and that that's a oftentimes missing part of communication, but communicate expectations, listen for feedback, listen some more, and do the do the best you can to communicate in the way that you and I are, Steve, which is you know talking or nowadays, you know, I always love face-to-face communication. That's not always so realistic. You know, you're over, you're you in uh, England, I'm in the East Coast of Massachusetts. And so we, we're not going to necessarily be face-to-face. And on top of that, we have the, uh, nowadays, is not so much face-to-face with the COVID in that. So, but that doesn't change the fact that communication is, is really, really critical, starting with being a... um Very active and attentive listener.
0: I love the simplicity of your ABCs, Eric, and easy to remember, but bang on and relevant too. Thank you. The next bit of the show, we're going to turn to is what we affectionately call hack to attack. So this is where something in your work life has perhaps not worked out as well. Uh, And it's fair to say you've shared with us a number of stories already that could align to this as an approach, but we've taken that situation that hasn't worked out well or hasn't been good, but we now use that as a key foundation in our work as a force of good. What would be your hack to attack? Steve, I think it's around responsiveness actually.
1: And that's such a, um, along with treating others well, reciprocation, um, respect, which all sort of are interchanged and, and, and connected. Responsiveness is an amazing differentiator. Responsiveness is if somebody sends you an email and it languishes for a while, you know, that sends a message. If somebody sends you a voicemail or, or a any kind of communication and it doesn't get a quick response, conversely, if you are responsive, I mean, even if you don't have the answer yet, but you say hey steve i I uh, got your email and I'm um, working on it, and then you follow up with the answer or or an update that builds value so in other words, what you're doing is 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 it's really making sort of deposits in the bank you can you can struggle with performance you can struggle with results, although those are ultimately what what we get measured by, which is you know performance results delivery of things but You can earn a lot of deposits in the bank of trust, so to speak, by being ultra responsive, and you can also set yourself apart from the competition. uh, Whether it be a you know you you work in a niche market or a highly competitive market or industry, serving coffee is an example. You can really set yourself apart by being ultra responsive, and and then that can be the difference between a competitive advantage. In times that we were not necessarily performing great, but we were very, very responsive, communicative to our clients, that would that would go a long way in building, maintaining trust and, you know, building up that, as I call it, the sort of the um, deposit of trust that can be drawn upon at times of maybe not peak performance.
0: Yeah, that's great. And the other kicker, of course, to that is that if you are responsive, you'll also be on their mind. And therefore, that recency of your deposits of trust, if you like, will be in the front of their mind when they're thinking of who do I need to engage to do this next bit of work.
1: You're excellent, Steve. And I find that even in this day and age of ultra you know, high tech and Zoom calls, and I still find that a huge competitive advantage and a major differentiator is responsiveness.
0: Yeah, me too. Love it. Sounds great, Eric. So the last thing we want to do with you is to invite you to do a bit of time travel. You get a chance now to go back to meet with Eric when you were 21 and you get a chance to give him some advice. What would it be? <laughs> yeah,
1: I knew this coming in and I still uh, struggle a little bit with it, Steve. But I would have, it's kind of sounds silly being an entrepreneur, right? That I would have done anything differently and in, in, in somebody that was blessed and fortunate enough to, you know, and I don't say retired anymore, I say t- took a few years off, which was like six or seven seven years started to be a year off and it turned into six or seven but the point is is when i go back to 21 you know what i would have done i would have gotten a trade i really respect people and i work with people in the trades too that are looking to sort of advance themselves professionally i would have acquired a trade in in my um where i could fall back on you know after being retired for five six seven years would have been wonderful to have a trade, whether it's you know an electrician or a plumber or you know something to that effect, and uh, that's maybe something I would have done differently in my uh, in my early twenties.
0: And I wonder, had you have done that though, would you have unlocked that entrepreneurial spirit?
1: Well, you know what? There's plenty of super entrepreneurial and successful tradespeople too. So, and I you know and I know some of them, and look to you know work with others that are, have the trade, but maybe they're looking to build on perhaps some of the um, you know, soft skills and executive type skills, you know, to to further their entrepreneurial career. So that's, but there's a, a lot of those people that are um, ultimately very, very successful. And I like the idea of that's one of those things that's transferable and you can do a lot of these trades are um, recession proof as well especially things like electrician and plumber and things like that
0: mm, exactly
1: but that's just
0: uh <laughs> entrepreneurial spirit uh, is devoid isn't it of what you do it's kind of if it's in you it's in you
1: very well said
0: and therefore whether you're a plumber whether you're an it geek whatever the case may be in terms of what you have as a job or what you do with your work it's the spirit the driver tenacity the guts grits and resiliency you call it in your book that will get you there right you
1: bet steve yeah so it's Like I said earlier, I I had oftentimes a short list of things to bring to the party, communication skills, attitude, belief in myself, belief in others. You know, those those are, although they're soft skills or intangibles that are not measurable, they're oftentimes high on the short list of things that I could bring before I had money to bring or or, uh, certainly any um, skills, any formal training
0: rather. Got it. So as folk have been listening to this, I'm pretty certain they're gonna be thinking, How do I get myself a copy from Despair to Millionaire? How do I find out more about Eric's work? How can I connect with him? If we're gonna direct our listeners to you, Eric, where's the best and how's the best place to do that?
1: Thank you for thank you very much for mentioning that, Steve. It's very simple. you could go to my website, which is my name, ericchason.com, ericchase dot com, or the actual landing page for the book is wwwfromd from D the number two M from d2m.com but it's available right now through either of those two sites I just mentioned or, or directly with Amazon thank you for uh, asking about that
0: You've also got a growing following on LinkedIn as well. And I know that we collaborate on various different bits of activity within LinkedIn as well. So I'd encourage anybody who wants to see a bit more broader work that you do and some of your insights, Eric, to also follow you on LinkedIn. Thank you very much for that, Steve. I just wanted to top off the show by saying, Eric, thank you ever so much for coming to share your story and share your lessons from leadership with our listeners. It's been a real pleasure in having you join the Leadership Hacker podcast. Eric and thanks for being on the show. Steve, thank you very much. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote and event or you would like to sponsor an episode please connect with us via our social media and you can do that by following and liking our pages on twitter and facebook our handle there is at leadership hacker instagram you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker and at youtube we're just leadership hacker so that's me signing off i'm steve rush and i've been the leadership hacker